Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. And those usually go up uh, same week. Sometimes they're a little bit delayed for uh, technical reasons, but um, I do try and make sure that they get up within a week. Actually, my husband does. He is the amazing keeper of all of our podcasts, um, at least uh, evidence-based in civil politics. So anyways, (laughs) um, I wanted to start out tonight with the story that I didn't get to last week um, because I think it's really interesting. Um, And of course, it's about a really fascinating woman, which I always enjoy bringing stories about fascinating women uh, to you. And so a collaboration between professional and amateur archaeologists believe that they have found the remains of the monastery of Abbe of Coldingham. Now, I think it's Abbe. It's A-E-B-B-E. Um, some people pronounce it Abbe. Some people pronounce it Eb. Um, I'm going to go with Abbe because it has the A in it uh, for tonight. So Abbe was the daughter of uh, King Ethelfrith of uh, Bernicia and Acha of Deidre. And so these were rulers of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in what is now uh, the southeastern portion of Scotland and the northeastern portion of England. And so um, when her father was killed, Abe fled with her siblings to Dalriata, which was a kingdom that extended across parts of western Scotland and northeastern Ireland, which was at the time a hub of Christianity, uh, to which the family quickly converted from their native paganism. So the Anglo-Saxons would have been pagans, and uh, then they would have moved over to Ireland, which had become much more Christian um, very, very quickly, um, and, you know, it's still very Christian today. So it really stuck in Ireland for some reason. I'm not sure uh, what it was about the people in Ireland that made uh, Christianity just very, very appealing to them. Um, but there was something about it that they really liked. <laughs> and so um, she joined her brother Oswald. When he returned to uh, Bernicia in uh, 635 CE, to reclaim his family's throne. And so she began a mission to convert the local population to Christianity. Now, of course, this wouldn't be a uh, tale of this time if there wasn't some sort of uh, kind of alliterative, uh, fanciful part to it. And so uh, Abbe is famous for having refused to marry, despite, of course, being quite an eligible bachelorette. Uh, (laughs) There is a story that she prayed so hard not to be betrothed to one particular prince that water rose up and prevented him from reaching her for three whole days, by which time he had given up the chase. And uh, so, of course, you know, this is almost certainly apocryphal, or it's been embellished over the centuries. Maybe there was just happened to be a really bad storm that week or something, and it became, you know, a legend. And so, of course, also people associated with Christianity often have these stories tied to them of, you know, ways in which 
praying helped them to do uh, something that is, of course, uh, something like maintain their chastity. And so um, this is actually one of my favorites, though. I just love the idea that she prayed really hard and then just some water filled up the stream and then he couldn't cross over it to get to her. (laughs) And so rather than marrying and having a family, she actually established a monastery to help her brother maintain control of the northernmost parts of his kingdom. And so apparently uh, this monastery held together a community of mixed pagans and Christians. So that's really interesting. Um, You know, there's always that idea of the Vikings. uh, And actually the monastery was raided by the Vikings in 870 CE and was raised at that time. Um, And so, of course, I always like the tales of the Vikings who kind of would convert to Christianity and then go back to being pagan, and then reconvert to Christianity and go back to being pagan. So, you know, there wasn't that kind of very defined line in this sort of time period, especially in uh, the sort of uh, Eastern and Northern uh, European countries. There wasn't, um, you know, people kind of went back and forth. And of course, Christianity is really good at um, sort of taking pagan rituals and whatever happens to be the local uh, rituals of a place and just saying, you know, just sort of putting a, uh, a patina of Christianity over them and saying, okay, okay, you can still keep doing this, but you're going to do this now in a way that is Christian. Cool. <laughs> and so um, it's actually one of the things that I think makes Christianity, has made Christianity so um incredibly successful is that it has not been, it has a lot of really rigid rules, but it also in some ways, especially in the early days, didn't have a lot of rigid rules. It just was basically like, okay, well, you've got all these gods. Well, now we're just going to make them saints. And then you can just say that there's this other god, our god, who is above them. But, you know, they can still be really important to you and you can still pray to them because you can pray to saints. Um, And they were really good at doing that sort of thing of just kind of folding people's existing beliefs into uh, the Christian mythos and um, being able to pull people in that way. Now, um, so unfortunately, yes, the, the Vikings came in 870 and they raised it to the ground. It was burned. And so um, excavations by a business called Dig Ventures, which specializes in crowdfunding, crowdsourcing and digital methods of getting the public more involved in archaeology found traces of a large but narrow circular ditch, which is most likely the vallum, uh, which would have been the boundary surrounding Abe's religious settlement. The section of boundary ditch we found links up with two other ditch sections, and together they seem to encircle Coldingham Priory, meaning that the heart of Abbe's monastery is somewhere underneath it, said Dr. Manda Forster, program manager at Dig Ventures. Now, outside of the boundary would have been where small-scale industries would have been located, and they actually found, uh, for instance, a huge pile of butchered animal bones there, and those were actually radiocarbon dated to between 660 and 860 CE. 
This is pretty much exactly when Abe's monastery was in existence. Originally built around 640 CE, it is said to have burned down shortly after her death, but was then rebuilt and thrived until it was destroyed once again by Viking raiders 200 years later, Dr. Forrester said. Um, so yeah, sorry, it burned down and then it was rebuilt and then the Vikings came and destroyed it again, <laughs> um, as they were wont to do. Um, and so others seeking uh, the site uh, had most likely been led astray by stories that the monastery was most likely on the headland looking over the sea. And so people were looking for it on the edge of the sea. But this new team looked further inland near the site still standing, um, the Coldingham Priory, which is still standing and is from a much later date. Um, and so they looked there and they found these ditches. And so it's really you know, ditches are sound very uh, uninspiring, but in England, ditches are pretty much the uh, gold star uh, feature for finding archaeological remains. Once you found a ditch, you're good. <laughs> um, and so they uh, note that we based our search on a geophysical survey, which revealed the outline outlines of several possible archaeological features, plus a series of individual finds, including fragments of an Anglo-Saxon belt fitting and sculpture, all of which seemed to center on the later medieval priory in the heart of the village. And it makes sense that the later Benedictine monastery was built on the site of its Anglo-Saxon predecessor. And so, yeah, that makes sense is that once you have a site that has had a, uh, had some sort of religious building on it, it makes sense to put another one there. Um, and that happened a lot in this area at the time. And so a lot of older um, buildings are just kind of, their remains are underneath newer buildings that are now, of course, also uh, ancient ruins. And so it's all a little bit uh, interesting where there's that layering. And of course, that means, unfortunately, though, that you don't have the ability to do extensive excavations. Uh, but the team has had public aid in their choice of trenches. So they actually asked people, you know, we have several places where we are thinking of doing trenches. They actually involved people in the process and said, you know, come and vote on where we should do these things. And so they actually uh, ended up digging four trenches. And so... They were chosen kind of where, where the public thought they should dig, but of course also the archaeologists kind of had some idea of where they might get the best results. It is brilliant to finally be able to announce that we found Abe's monastery and to confirm that part of it is probably underneath Coldingham Priory, Dr. Forrester said. Abbe is an extraordinary figure, an example of a powerful Anglo-Saxon woman who played a big part in establishing Christianity in the region during the 7th century CE. Now that we've got evidence to pinpoint exactly where her monastery was, we can help bring back her story. We can help bring her story back to life. So that is very exciting um, because I think it's very cool to be able to uh, pull these women back out into the light because uh, as we all know <laughs> from all of our schooling as children, uh, there is a very, very strong uh, narrative of men having done most of everything. And as we all know in real life, that's not true. And of course, 
it's really hard to try and fight against that when you when these stories have really been uh, suppressed in some ways and forgotten. Um, and so it's really great to have archaeological evidence to say, no, we have this we have this actual building. We can tell that there was something here and we know about this figure who is said to have built it. And, you know, I mean, obviously we can't know for certain, uh, all history is subject to, uh, you know, the whims of the writer, the, uh, whims of memory and things like that. Um, you know, certainly that story about the water, uh, separating her from a, uh, bothersome suitor is almost certainly false. It's almost certainly, you know, a, um, tall tale added on to the story to make her seem even more pious and, um, wonderful. And, but I think it's still very cool to have be to be able to kind of pull out evidence of this figure who uh, clearly was not interested in just being a wife and mother. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Many uh, amazing women are wives and mothers, but uh, especially in this time, doing something that was outside of that was very hard. Um, as far as we know at the moment, because again, a lot of the stories of women have been lost from these time periods. So yeah. All right, let's move on. <laughs> and uh, we're actually going to go back in time uh, for one more archaeological story. And so this is something that's come up this week, and it's really cool. Um, and it is the find of an engraving that is thought to be 12,000 years old. Uh, it was found in southwestern France, and the carving actually shows not only these figures of animals, but also geometric decorations. And so the archaeologists have identified the carver as having belonged to the Azilian industry. And so this was a tool tradition in Europe that was active during the late Paleolithic and early Mesolithic uh, time period. So that's the sort of in the uh, more vernacular parlance, the uh, early Stone Age and the Middle Stone Age. Um, and so there, that tool tradition is characterized by small stone tools, which were fitted into handles made of bone or antler. And they also did a lot with geometric um, decorations. And so the National Archaeological Research Institute, or INRAP, uh, said in a translated statement that the legs and three hooves are, quote unquote, very realistic, which if you see the picture, they are. And I'll uh, post a picture on the Facebook page later. Now, unfortunately, the slab is broken so that the head of the horse has been lost. Um, but this horse takes up about half of the surface of the stone with other smaller figures around it, including what is most likely another horse and a species of deer. There's also the outline of an arux, which is an extinct species of uh, sort of very large, very wild cattle uh, that are the sort of ancestors of today's cattle in um, Europe. And so they were these big, big uh, cows with big horns. And um, there's lots of funny stories, or not funny, but there's lots of uh, stories about, um, you know, early humans hunting Uruks. And it's been used in, uh, the one I always remember is from the, the novel, um, and I forget what it is, but it's this 
very large, very long uh, novel about sort of early humans. I think it has like, I think it includes like the building of Stonehenge up to the building of Stonehenge. I can see the the picture of it in my mind's eye, but I can't remember what the um, name of it is, but it's, it's a fairly famous book. But anyways, (laughs) again, uh, getting off on a tangent, I apologize. And so on the other side of it is actually the outline of a horse's rump. And uh, so the slab measures 10 inches tall and seven inches wide. And it was discovered during excavations near the Angoulême uh, train station north of Bordeaux. Now, earlier digs in the area have found a zillion hunters' tools, including stone scrapers, which would have been used in preparing meat. Uh, They also found fireplaces, piles of pebbles that could have been heated for cooking, uh, animal bones, arrowheads, and cut flints from the site. And um, I just, one of the things that I was thinking about is I was watching a show the other day, and it was a BBC show, and it was basically about like, looking to find uh, evidence of sort of cryptids. Uh, But what was really interesting about this one particular one is that they were in Mongolia and uh, they were actually looking at this particular kind of horse. And I can't remember what kind of horse, what the name of the horses are, but um, they were these amazing horses that have been sort of saved from the brink of extinction and um, they look just like, just like the pictures of horses in cave paintings at uh, La Coe, um and places like that where we know that early Neolithic um, men and possibly women uh, were painting these amazing, realistic paintings of the wildlife that they saw. Um, and these horses are just, I mean, they look like they've just absolutely walked off of that wall of paintings. They're called Przewalski's horse. And, uh, so again, I'll try and, uh, make a uh, link to that on the Facebook and, oh, they're just adorable and they're very small. So like, you know, today's sort of stallions and, and racing horses, those are a completely different, uh, animal, uh, from sort of very early horses that were kind of small and squat. Um, even if you think about like, uh, medieval European, um, by, by the medieval times, they had sort of gotten bigger, um, sort of chargers. But, uh, before that, uh, earlier horses would have been much more stout, much more, uh, sort of almost, almost like a, like a one and a half sized, uh, Shetland pony rather than a, uh, giant stallion. And uh, so, yes, Przewalski's horses, they were actually brought back kind of from the um, brink of um, extinction, and they are just beautiful. They look exactly like those cave paintings. And I just, when I saw saw them standing on the sort of cliffside in the middle of Mongolia, it was just, I was so enchanted. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think that's really cool to be able to have that connection where those horses just look exactly like what these people were drawing because they, you know, were again, my continuing theme that, you know, ancient humans were just like us. Uh, they just didn't have as much accumulated knowledge as we do. And so they were just as able to do pictorial representations of what they saw. Um, and so, yeah, uh, but they were also able to do abstract things. So that's a big issue that sometimes comes up is that when you say that, when you say, oh, well, ancient people were good at uh, creating realistic understandings or realistic representations of what they saw, when there's something that's sort of weird looking, someone will immediately say, oh, well, that's a UFO or an alien or something. And it's like, no, they could also very much have engaged in representative art and abstract art. There's nothing that says that they couldn't have done that. Um, you know, there were people who were probably making abstract art all throughout the ages. It's just that that was not what was uh, presented in salons and, uh, you know, out in where the public was. But people draw things all the time, um, have done for millennia. And so um, I think that it's important not to think that everything they did had to have been exactly representative of what they saw. But um, a lot of it was and it was really well done. Okay, so let's switch completely now uh, from archaeology and uh, beautiful horses <laughs> to uh, space and a bunch of stuff that NASA is doing and a bunch of stuff that has to do with the moon and uh, Mars. So let's talk about the moon and Mars and NASA uh, pretty much for the rest of the evening um, until, of course, we have to switch off to civil politics at uh, seven o'clock. So I believe we'll have a special guest of uh, Wendy who does um, the show after theirs, uh, who does subculture. She, I think, will be guest starring tonight on civil politics. So if you're interested in that, you should definitely stay tuned for that. Um, so let's start out with talking about the uh, Mars, um, the Mars uh, Insight probe that is unfortunately not working so well right now. Uh, and then we will take a break and come back and talk about the moon for a while. So it seems that NASA has actually finally decided uh, that they're going to try something <laughs> uh, to possibly free InSight's stuck heat probe. Now, initial reports were that the probe had hit a rock soon after it began to attempt to bury itself in the Martian surface. And of course, we all know it made it less than a foot below the surface, uh, which was very disappointing since the goal was to get it at least 10, if not 15 feet down. And so it's been stuck since February. And it's been, you know, kind of a downer. And so NASA hasn't just been sort of, you know, hasn't just left it there and not been doing anything. I mean, the reason why it's taken so long is that they want to be very, very careful um, about what they do. And, you know, they wanted to sort of look at a bunch of data and see if they could figure out what the heck went wrong. And so that new data suggests that the soil quality actually differs rather than there being an actual rock in the way. 
And so that's from um, a press release uh, from JPL recently, the Jet Propulsion Lab. And so the plan is first to lift up the support structure with the lander's robotic arm in order to allow researchers a better look at the drill. The next step is then to try to press down on the ground to increase the friction felt by the drill. And again, the reason for the long time to a solution comes from NASA scientists wanting to exercise an abundance of caution and not make things worse rather than better. Because, for instance, the other two instruments have been working as planned. And if you use part of the InSight lander to try to manipulate this other tool, it might actually, you know, cause something to tip over or hit something. You know, you, you can't know. And it's very far away. There is no way to, you know, get a second chance at this. If it falls over and the uh, instrument that is on top of it, the, um, the, the rotation and interior structure experiment that's on top of the lander, if that falls over, it's, it's, you know, it's done. So they want to be very careful. And again, those other two instruments are working as planned. So it is the rotation and interior structure experiment, which is on top of the lander. And the seismic experiment for interior structures, or the SICE, is on the ground beside the lander. Uh, and so both have been sending back data as expected. So it's not a total loss. Um, again, NASA is really good at troubleshooting. It's really good at building things that do actually work when they get there. Uh, we have come a long way. And so, you know, I mean, it's a shame to think that this wonderful piece of engineering might not get a chance to do everything it wanted to do but it's still doing some great work. And so we definitely don't want to discount that. Now, of course, there are also mysteries to be solved on the moon. So uh, when we come back from doing some PSAs and some show promos, we're gonna talk about the moon. So hang on for just a minute. For the best in electro, new wave, funk, and dance, tune into Subculture, Friday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Listen from your computer, iPad, or phone by tuning into valleyfreeradio.org. Subculture, Friday nights, here on WXOJ. I'm Rachel Maddow with the Pioneer Valley Planning Commission and the Franklin Regional Council of Governments for Valley Free Radio. Reminding you that legally, bicycles are vehicles and bicyclists have the same rights and responsibilities and should observe the same rules as motorists. For more information on bicycle rights and safety, go to www.massbike.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers, from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. 
Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. Join me, DJ Vinyl Scratch, on the warm heart of Africa. From Cape Town to the Congo, Marrakesh to Mogadishu, and to the New World and beyond, we explore the best in pop music from Africa and the Afro diaspora all across the globe. Once again, that's 7 to 9 p.m. every Wednesday, only on Valley Free Radio. Okay, so we are back, and we are going to start talking about the moon. Now, of course, it is probably a very familiar sight to you, uh, I assume, I hope, um, <laughs> that you from time to time look up and enjoy uh, the view of the moon because it is very uh, beautiful. And um, I don't know, there's something about the moon that I find particularly um, engaging. I don't know why, but I do really like looking at the moon. Uh, and so, yeah, but of course, even the moon has a lot of weirdnesses that we still don't know about. Because one of the big things that we kind of, I think, forget about is that even though it's right there, it's also really, really, really far away and really, really hard to get to. Um, so I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, I think, about the whole idea of how uh, when we first went to the moon, we did everything using analog, uh, using actual physical um, switches and things like that. And now since everything is digital, we need to really redesign everything um, because the radiation that's out there is much more, um, you know, digital things are much more sensitive to that than actual physical objects that move and have, uh, you know, knitted um, rope and things like that on them. <laughs> like it was very physical in the old days. Um, you know, that's why you only needed so much pro uh, you know, the, the computers only had the processing power of like, I think they say, um, that the, that they had about the processing power of the original, uh, Nintendo Game Boy. Um, the original Nintendo Game Boy may have been, been better off, uh, than those computers, but that's because a lot of it was really physical. It wasn't, um, it didn't need that processing power as much, but now everything is different. And so it's really hard to get there. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in another minute. Um, but let us start off with something called transient lunar phenomena, uh, transient lunar phenomena. And so these are brief flashes of light and color on the surface of the moon. And of course, we suspect we know what some of them are, but we don't have a actual explanation for what causes all of them. And so researchers at the Julius Maximilius Universität in Würzburg, uh, Germany, are hoping to get a better idea if they are all caused by what we suspect, which is meteor impacts, uh, such as the one that happened during the last full lunar eclipse. Um, so if you remember that there was this lunar eclipse and uh, there was a little flash and that was a little meteor hitting the moon. And it was actually really, really cool because I think it might have been the first time someone had captured that particular phenomena during a full eclipse. So very cool. Now, these flashes have actually been reported for hundreds of years. So, you know, people have been looking up uh, at the sky, seeing the moon and seeing these tiny little flashes. Uh, remember, uh, back in the old olden days, uh, there was a lot less light pollution. So the sky would have been a lot darker. So it would have been probably easier for people to see even with a, uh, you know, very rudimentary um, telescope or even with their uh, naked eyes if they had really good eyesight. And so, 
Uh, again, though, there is a pretty large distance between the moon and us, 250,000 miles to be uh, precise. And so I don't have a, sorry, I should have gotten a, you know, a yardstick for that of like how many uh, Statues of Liberty that is or something, but I didn't tonight. I'm sorry, but it's, it's, it's far out there. And so uh, there's also a lot of atmosphere <laughs> between us and there's also a lot of space and that space contains a lot of dust. Um, and so there is some question as to what exactly we are seeing because we're based on when we look from the ground from on earth, we're looking through the atmosphere, through that dust and, uh, possible, uh, debris and then to the moon. And so researchers have built a moon monitoring telescope at an observatory north of Seville, Spain. And so they have two cameras that are attached to the telescope. And if both register a flash, a message is sent to the researchers. Now, the experiment is still in progress and will probably be completed around, in around a year, according to the team's leader, Professor Hakan Kayal. Now, part of the interest in this phenomena is that, of course, we want to make sure we know what's happening on the moon's surface if we're going to send astronauts back there. And again, it's actually a more complex person problem than you might think. Now, the most obvious solution, again, has been meteors, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, but it might also be that some of the craters are emitting radon gas, which could fluoresce, uh, or that seismic activity is causing, uh, caused by the moon shrinking could be causing flashes. So, um, for instance, there's some um, suggestions on Earth, and there's been some um, documentation on Earth that uh, these things called Earth lights are often caused by um, seismic activity on Earth. So you get these sort of emissions of light that are sort of semi-understood even here on Earth. And of course, it might be something that we haven't even thought of yet. But it could also be something that just looks like it's happening on the moon, but is actually happening in that intervening space or in the intervening atmosphere. It could be meteors striking our atmosphere. It could be glints from passing satellites, because of course we know uh, <laughs> as of very recently that those satellites can be quite a problem uh, or some other atmospheric phenomena. And so more data needs to be collected in order to really figure out what in the heck is going on. <laughs> so yeah, so hopefully they are going to continue their project and we will learn more about what the heck is going on on the moon. And so there's another weird thing that is on the moon that is actually a part of the moon. Uh, so that is this weird anomaly in the moon's south pole. And so there is this enormous and strange structure that has sort of puzzled researchers. The South Pole Aitken Basin uh, was produced by an ancient impact with a body that would have been one side, uh, that would have had one side that was the length of almost, almost the entire U.S., uh, basically between New York City and Omaha, Nebraska. Um, pretty big. <laughs> And so underneath that crater uh, left by this impact is actually an excessive mass extending at least 300 kilometers down, which is comparable to more than 10 times the depth of Earth's crust. 
and the Earth's crust is actually pretty thick. When you see those sorts of, uh, you know, infographics about the Earth's crust, you see the sort of bit that we exist on and have drilled down into, and it kind of looks like pretty much the the width of a fingernail, <laughs> and then everything else below it is like, you know, the size of you know a couple of inches. <laughs> So yeah, um, it's pretty deep and it's pretty big. And so they're, they really don't, don't understand exactly what it is and how it got there. And so, uh, after doing a bunch of research, uh, the researchers now believe that this anomaly is actually a part of the body that impacted the moon. And so using topographical data from the Lunar Orbiter Laser Altimeter, or LOLA, from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and global gravity data from the duo of Small Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory or GRAIL spacecrafts, the researchers found, quote, a conspicuous mass excess in the mantle. Uh, and so this excessive mass uh, is around 2.18 quintillion or 10 to the 18th power kilograms of excess mass. It's very big, very heavy. Um, and so you know, they're a little bit confused as to why it's there. It's not, if you do a model of the moon, it doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to be there. And so they have two main suggestions for how this mass got there. Either there was a specific process that caused the material to concentrate there as the moon cooled and crystallized and condensed, or that there is an enormous metal core deposited by that impacting body. And of course, this is a mystery that bears further investigation. If it comes from an impact, the location around 400 kilometers southeast of the crater's center could help researchers better model how impact craters can form. If it's due to an uneven crystallization of a magma ocean, then researchers will want to know how that could have occurred. And so, in fact, Chang E. The Chang'e 4 mission, uh, one of the landers from uh, China, those researchers recently found evidence of mantle material in the basin that was potentially ejected by yet another impact. So there's all sorts of things going on down there. And so uh, hopefully they will be able to uh, figure out what exactly is going on down there. Now, of course, further exploration, exploration of the moon is set to happen in the fairly near future, uh, despite a rather confusing tweet from the Twitterer in chief. Uh, and so, of course, as we go into this new phase, we will have people popping up again and saying, of course, that we can't go to the moon. We've never been to the moon. Uh, but of course, this is very silly. We know for a fact that humans have stepped foot on the moon. Uh, they've actually left behind artifacts. There's actually a little mirror that they use to do measurements to figure out how far away the moon is from us at any given time. Um, but of course, the other problem is, is that uh, even though we don't think about it in this way, uh, if you wanted to actually prove to someone to actually say like, oh, here are the, the bits of things that we left on the moon and I'm showing them to you from a telescope on while we're standing on the earth. The thing is, is that because of the scale of how small those things would be and how far away the moon is, even though it looks like it's really close, you would have to have a ginormous 
enormous telescope, a telescope that is just beyond what can be built on Earth. And I know that sounds sort of counterintuitive because it's like, well, the moon is right there, but it's very deceptive as to how close it is. Um, and we just have come to this sort of feeling that it's very close because we can see it in the sky every night, but it's actually very far away um, in terms of optical length and things like that. And the things that were left on it are so small. It would be basically like trying to uh, look at, look for an individual ant um, on the surface of the earth from the moon, <laughs> uh, practically. Um, obviously, a little bit different. It would be like looking for the moon landing stuff on the moon from here. Obviously, bad analogy, but I hope you sort of get what I mean. But we definitely went there. <laughs> and so uh, one of the artifacts from those Apollo missions that did actually end up going to the moon and landing humans on the moon uh, has been a missing... Uh, and uh, basically discarded Apollo 10 lunar module that was once affectionately nicknamed Snoopy. Uh, it's basically been drifting in space for the last 50 years. But after eight years of searching for the module, astronomers now think that they've actually located it. So on May 22nd, 1969, just a few months before that famous Apollo 11 moonwalk, uh, Apollo 10 made an important preparatory flight. Uh, three astronauts orbited the moon just 47,400 feet above its surface. And so astronauts Thomas Stafford and Eugene Cernan uh, spent time in Snoopy while their colleague, John Young, uh, stayed in the command module, nicknamed Charlie Brown. Now, of course, it's interesting. They have, you know, how, why was it Charlie Brown and Snoopy? Well, apparently uh, they decided that because this mission was to quote unquote snoop on the future uh, lunar landing site, they would do this. Um, you know, again, scientists and astronauts and all these people, so true science, they're not so great at, at naming conventions. Uh, a lot of times they do things that are very, very literal. Um, but, you know, this was a good attempt, Snoopy and and, uh, and Charlie Brown. <laughs> so anyways, uh, the two modules executed a docking maneuver and the command module uh, headed back to Earth successfully with all three astronauts. Snoopy, however, was flung into uh, into orbit around the sun and presumed lost. Until now, when a group of astronomers reported that they were 98% certain that they had located the module. Nick Howes, a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, reported the findings to an audience attending the recent Cheltenham Science Festival in the UK. Now, he actually began looking for Snoopy in 2011 and has been sifting through radar data gathered from multiple observ observatories ever since. He had help from members of Asteroid Zoo, uh, which is a citizen's science project. And, um, you know, I'm always sort of promoting citizen science projects. I um, have made a sort of mental commitment to myself just the other day, uh, that I'm going to start trying to do an hour's worth of uh, citizen science project work every uh, day, if I can manage it, but at least a couple of hours every week. And um, if you're interested in that, there's a ton of ways that you can get into uh, doing citizen science projects. And sometimes you can actually really make a difference, um, especially some of these astronomy ones, like people have actually found 
uh, really interesting and uh, objects that have had people, uh, you know, astronomers have written, then written papers about and have named those people in the paper. Um, and so you really can do some good work. So I will uh, post some links to the citizen science um, uh the websites that are sort of the um, aggregates for that. Um, and so Zooniverse is actually one of the big ones. So Asteroid Zoo was part of the Zooniverse. Okay, so they actually thought they had found the object back in 2015, but WT1190F uh, was later identified as the translunar injection stage for the 1998 Lunar Prospector mission. And so this new object was found by the Mount Lemmon Sky Survey uh, back in January of 2018. It quickly became obvious that the size and orbit were very much like the calculations we made in 2011 and 2012 for Snoopy, House noted. And so he and his team used online orbital calculators to determine the object's orbit. Now, he notes that the only way to be sure uh, of what the object really is, is to get a close look at it. However, that's not really possible at the moment. It's actually heading away from the Earth, and it won't be sort of swinging back our way for another 18 years. And unfortunately, it's too dim at this point to be imaged by most telescopes. And so the next steps are to basically wait uh, for it to be actually identified. And then if it turns out to be Snoopy, uh, decide whether or not a mission to retrieve it should be mounted. Um, and of course, there would be some scientific and historical value to trying to recover the object. Um, however, of course, it would be really costly. Uh, so Howe suggests it might be an interesting puzzle for SpaceX to solve, uh, which is one of the few good suggestions I have heard about SpaceX. I think that having Elon Musk spend his money actually recovering an important object from the history of the space race is a fine idea. I'm actually quite excited about that prospect. <laughs> But of course, we have to wait and see uh, quite some time, it seems, uh, to know if uh, the object even truly is Snoopy, unless somebody actually wants to sort of go out there and look at it. Um, so yeah, <laughs> we shall see. Okay. Um, and of course, as noted before, we do plan to go back to the moon despite the uh, recent mixed messages. Uh, but of course, all that depends on whether or not the current government actually understands the cost and labor involved in such a task. And so recently, NASA uh, was up on the hill and they were uh, kind of telling people what they thought they needed for that. Uh, so they estimate they need anywhere from 20 to $30 billion in order to land humans on the moon by 2024. And of course, that's in addition to the standard budget, which is already over a million dollars, uh, sorry, a billion dollars. Um, and so uh, <laughs> NASA Administrator uh, Jim Bridenstine uh, told CNN, think of it as a short-term investment to have a sustainable program at the moon where we're ultimately keeping our eyes on Mars. Now, of course, I would also mention that as much as I love NASA and I think that they're doing amazing work with their landers and their uh, orbiters, uh, they also are notorious for their budget overruns and for their uh, slipping uh, timelines. And so, um, yeah, that 20 to 30 billion could become 50 to 60 very easily. Uh, 
And so, you know, the program has been uh, named Artemis after the Greek goddess of the hunt, archery, forest, and hills, and of course, the moon. Now, her twin brother uh, was the god Apollo. And so I think naming it after Artemis is very cool, even though, uh, again, I am, I have very mixed feelings about this idea of sending people back to the moon. Um, and so uh, responding to the confusing tweet by the Republican president, uh, Bridenstine tried to clarify, how do we learn to live and work on another world, namely the moon, and then go on to Mars and do it in a way that when this is complete, the American people can have a program that they can be proud of long term? Uh, it is what he suggested. Um, and so basically, you know, it's that whole thing where, you know, the moon is just a stepping stone to Mars is basically the, the play he's making there. Uh, but of course, because nothing can be easy in this current epoch, uh, Republicans want to find the money for this project from things like the Pell Grants program, uh, which helps low-income students attend college. Thankfully, Democrats in Congress are very dubious of this plan, uh, as they very well should be. Um, but of course, the Republican president doesn't really care very much. I mean, I don't think he cares about going to the moon at all, frankly. Uh, he just wants it done during his, uh, what he thinks is a probable second term. Um, and frankly, at this moment, unfortunately, I think is a probable second term. Um, but of course, he, again, sees the moon as a stepping stone to Mars, which is the real goal of getting his name in the history books for scientific endeavors, no matter how uh, little he deserves it. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, actually, let's wrap up tonight with a fun story. I know, I know, it seems very uh, unlikely that there's a fun story here, but... Uh, <laughs> after that. But let's go back to Mars and talk about the fact that uh, that absolute workhorse, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, has beamed back a new picture of uh, what was once a sand dune on the planet that bears a remarkable resemblance to the Star Trek logo. <laughs> Enterprising viewers will make the discovery that these features look conspicuously like a famous logo the University of Arizona, which manages the MRO high-rise camera, said in a statement. You'd be right, but it's only a coincidence. And so, of course, much like other so-called sculptures that have been found on the red planet, this one is just a combination of different natural forces, uh, including wind and lava, that have shaped the Martian surface. The dune is located in Hellas Planitia, um, a large plain within the Hellas Impact Basin. And so this is in the southern hemisphere of Mars. Now, this isn't the first chevron-shaped dune uh, formation that they found on the planet. And of course, it's a very simple design, which means it's very easy to spot in nature, either here on Earth or, of course, up there on Mars. Now, researchers believe these chevron dunes start out as crescent-shaped dunes where water and surface um, are, where wind and the surface are interacting. Then lava came into the picture. Lava erupted and spilled over the area surrounding the dunes, but not in such a large amount as to completely cover them. So then when the lava cooled, the dunes remained stuck up like islands, according to the statement. 
Uh, however, they were just still dunes, or they were still just dunes, and the wind continued to blow. Eventually, the sand piles that were the dunes migrated away, leaving these footprints in the lava plain. These are also called dune casts and record the presence of dunes that were surrounded by lava. And so, of course, this may not be a sign that the Federation is out there waiting for us to find it, uh, but it does, again, come from another of NASA's rock star space uh, vehicles. HiRISE has been orbiting the planet and sending back both amazing pictures, and uh, the orbiter has been acting as a communication relay between NASA and other Mars rovers and landers for the last 13 years. And it is expected to keep pace and to be used to help guide the Mars 2020 rover as well. So I think that NASA has more than made up for the one orbiter they lost back in uh, 1999 and a couple of the other uh, mishaps they've had. Um, so yeah, all right. That is all we have for tonight. I do have one more Mars story. Maybe we'll talk about that in two weeks. Um, I will be out next week, so there will be a repeat, unfortunately. Um, but I hope you have a good week. And please do stay tuned for uh, Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.